Morning, family. Morning. Springbok supporters, how are you doing today? Hey? <laughs> I, I actually planned to wear a Springbok scarf and then I, I forgot it. I mean, but I did have contact with some of my English friends and all I can tell you is I'm glad I'm not leading church in England this morning. You know, or being a South African in an English church this morning. I, you know, let's, let's be honest. We should not have won that match on that games, you know. But God has his favorites. What can we say? You know, so praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah, it's... So it's next Saturday evening. We go again. Hey? So see you Sunday morning. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> Um, so we're busy with a, a series that is, a, is a, a little bit of a reminder, a refresher, a just sort of realigning us again with this idea of the front lines, and which is so central to our vision and our values. And I want to thank Ben and Neil for doing both excellent jobs in just sharing just you know, part of this and how to encourage us. And uh, so today what I want to do is, is just take some of those thoughts a, a little further and particularly talk about perhaps the, the truth that we believe, how that impacts in our lives and in our front lines, and how do we then from that basis practically live that out on our front lines. I don't know about you, but every now and then, doesn't life feel like it's confusing? Do you ever get to that space where you think there's just too much happening and too much going on? And you almost feel like you're losing a grip on life and you and you're sort of like just, I, I, I've got, you know, this basket and these many things to fit into it. And my days are not long enough to get everything, attend to everything properly. And it, it feels like it's just too much. And every now and then you sort of want to just stop and say, can we, can we just sort of come back to what is the core truth and what is life really about? Because it feels like I'm getting a bit lost in amongst everything and all that's going on and everything that is asked of me is, is how do, what is it really about? What should I focus on? What is central? How do I keep the main thing the main thing and not get drawn into all the little stuff and complexities and everything? And I think we all feel like that at times and there were times when people in the time of Jesus had that sense and feeling and came to Jesus. And we read about it in Matthew 22. There was this occasion where Jesus was interacting with some of the religious people of the time. And uh, he seemed to be taking a bit of a position with the Sadducees of telling them to be quiet for a bit. He, he wasn't agreeing with them. He wasn't going along with their thoughts. And the Pharisees saw this as an opportunity to go, well, okay, Jesus, perhaps if you're not with the Sadducees, you must be with us. And they came to him and they said, now you tell us, what do you think is the core of life? What is it all about? They, they sort of said to Jesus, let's, let's cut to the chase. Can we just, you know, make sure we understand what is the main thing? Now, that's an interesting phrase. Can we cut to the chase? How many of you know where that phrase comes from? I'm the only one that knows. <laughs> but for, not for long. I know because I researched it. I thought, that's an interesting way. Where does that phrase come from? Cut to the chase. It's actually a Hollywood phrase that became sort of used in popular language in the 1920s. And it was because in those days, Hollywood movies tended to have a very predictable pattern to it, and it always ended in some form of a chase. It was the sort of climax of the movies of the day was some chase that would happen. 
And so in 1929, there was a movie made, Hollywood Girl, and it was the first time this, this phrase was used. And the phrase was, can we just cut to the chase? Basically, can we just get through all the peripheral stuff and all the buildup and everything and just get to the thing that's inevitable and that's going to happen ultimately? Let's cut to the chase. So now you know. If you're at some trivia competition somewhere, you can be the nerd that stands out and go, I know where that comes from. And then you can say, my pastor told me. So it must be true. It must therefore be true. So sometimes in life, we just want to cut to the chase. We, we sort of want to say to somebody, just boil it down to me to what is the core? What is the thing I should really focus on and do? And so these guys come to Jesus and they say, can you just cut to the chase? Can you just boil it down for us? What is life all about? And Jesus responds. Matthew 22, verse 37. And he says this so well-known Phrase. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, that's a very familiar statement to us. For most of us in this room, and for those that are joining online, when we hear that phrase, it's a Jesus phrase. It's a Jesus quote. It's something Jesus said, because that's how it's introduced to us. And so when you think about this phrase, you think about Jesus saying it. But we must remember, this isn't actually a Jesus phrase. Jesus was quoting. Jesus was quoting the scripture. This was a phrase, in fact, that every Jew that heard him say this was extremely familiar with this phrase. This was nothing new. They weren't asking Jesus, Jesus, will you come and sort of cut to the chase? Tell us what life is about. And Jesus thought, this is my moment. I'm going to tell them something they've never heard. In fact, he tells them something they do, they speak about every single day of their lives. He reminds them. He takes them back to a truth. Probably a truth that is buried under a whole lot of other stuff by now. The foundational truth of what it means to be a servant of God. But it's now been covered by the Sadducees have covered it with certain laws and rituals and theories and thoughts and philosophies and the Pharisees have covered it and every person has covered this phrase and are trying to live this in so many different ways but they've perhaps forgotten that which lies underneath. That which really is, if you boil it all down to its final thought or its first thought, Jesus reminds them of that. He goes back to what is referred to as the Shema Yisrael, Deuteronomy 6. I want to read it for you in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Jesus reminds them. He says, you already know what the basic truth of life is. The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he adds Leviticus, which says, and love your neighbor as yourself. None of the Jews that heard him say that that day went, wow. They probably all went, we know that. What are you talking about? Give us something more. They, they probably, most of them felt a bit let down by him saying this. It's like, come on, man. 
That's fundamental because I'm sure you know that the Shema Israel, which contains this, is prayed by every Jew still today, twice a day. In the morning they say this, they recite this in a prayer form, and in the evening they recite this in a prayer form. They, they, they really try to build their faith on this way where God said, these commandments you must keep before you. Teach them to your children. Tie them around yourself. Have them before your thoughts. God was saying, this is the stuff of life. You have to know this and you have to remember this. You have to remind yourself all the time. So every Jew, Jesus says this to, says, but I prayed it this morning and I prayed this evening. I know this. In fact, this is how they pray it. The first two phrases, and I, I want to I pray this or read this for you in the original Hebrew, as a Jew today would still say this every morning and every evening. The first sentence which goes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A Jew will pray this, and when they pray this, they cover their eyes. They would close their eyes as a sign of saying, I'm focusing on this, this truth. I want to make sure that I see this truth before me more than I see anything else. So what they will do is they will, they will say it like this. They will close their face, cover their eyes, and they will say, they will say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohimu, Adonai Echad. And they will recite this every morning and every evening. Sometimes in song form, sometimes in spoken word. And then, in the, and then they will say the second phrase. The second phrase, which translated is this. Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. And this they will say, not with their eyes covered, but they will whisper this. Almost just loud enough that the person saying it can hear it, but nobody else needs to hear it. To, in a sense, say, I need to own this truth. It's my truth. And so they would say, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchoto Loholam Va'et. And every Jew would say this, morning and evening. So to these people, how dare Jesus say, just remember this. They know this. The reality is, you know and I know, knowing something and living it is two different things. We are so quick to forget what something really means. And what Jesus is trying to do is to take them back to the kernel, the core truth. So I want to tell you today, to be a Christian, simply whittled down to its core meaning, is to live a life. The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else is an expression of that. To be a Christian is to want to do this. To love God. Every day, every moment, every opportunity I have is to love God. Now, what does that mean practically? How do I do that? I think it's very important to begin where this thought begins, the Shema Israel begins. The Lord your God is one. Why would God expect His people? Now, we as Christians don't do that. We don't recite this. But I don't think we must think that God doesn't expect us to build our lives around this truth, the Lord your God is one. What does that mean for you? You're, you're what is called a, a monotheist. You believe in one God. Do you know that? That's a Christian. A Christian is somebody that believes there's one God. There's only one God. 
What does that, what does that practically mean for you? How does that change your life on a day-to-day basis? The fact that you believe the Lord your God is one. Well, I'll tell you, for me, I've been meditating on the Shema Israel now for about three years regularly. Just what does that mean? Why is this the core of everything? Why does everything else in my life depend on this statement? And for me, simply, I think, firstly, what it means is when I realize the Lord your God is one, is that my life is about one thing. It's not about many things. Because every day I live my life, I feel like my life is about many things. I'll so often say to myself, I feel like I'm being pulled in 10 directions at the same time. How many of you can identify with that feeling? It's like I'm trying to figure out how to live life, which, which things must deserve my attention when, what is my priorities, and I feel like life is this balancing act between millions of things that I have to attend to and have to attend to well, and I get pulled into this feeling like life is chaotic and it's, it's confusing. But this tells me, no, no, no. Life is about one thing. It's not about many things, it's about one thing. Because at the beginning and the end of life is one God. And if the scripture says the Lord your God is one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Please notice the the relationship in that statement between one and all. One, all. One, all. Because there's one God, everything, all is about that one God. So everything in my life is about one thing. I'm not trying to please 10 people. I'm not trying to please two people. My whole life, my existence is about one person, and that's God. So therefore, everything in my life finds its meaning, its purpose, its value in one place. So it may feel like my life is this confusing mess, but actually, it's lived from one thing towards one thing, and that's God. The Lord your God is one. Aren't you glad you don't have five gods that you have to please? You don't have ten gods that you have to appease. You've got one God. Everything that exists, every event, every moment, everything in this whole universe is about that one God. So practically what does that mean? That, therefore, for instance, means that every person I deal with comes from the same place. There are not people from different gods on this planet. I know some people believe that, but if you believe what the Scripture says, then it tells you every human being that walks this planet, for instance, comes from one place. So I don't have to figure out, are you from there or are you from there? Who made you? Who brought you about? Before I can relate to you, I know you come from the same place as I do because the Lord your God is one. So what does that mean? What difference does that make? Let's bring that, for instance, into this conflict in the Middle East or the conflict in India or the conflict in the Ukraine. When we're sitting dealing with conflicts like this, One of the things the world wants to do is to pull us apart and say, are you for this group or are you for that group? How many of you have been facing those questions? 
And a young person sent us a message the other day and said, I've just lost a friend because I was asked, am I for this group or am I for that group? And I said, I'm for this group and that's not the group that she's from and now I've lost a friend. Because that's what the world tries to do. It says, where are you from? Now, I understand that, but as a Christian, you and I must always remember we are from the same place. Fundamentally, at the bottom, at the beginning, at the end of it all, we are from the same place. We are made by the same God. We are loved by the same God. We are made with the same purpose by the same God. So therefore, fundamentally, we are united. So if you are asked, are you for the Palestinians or are you for the Jews? Now, I understand you know, at some place there, there, where there's discussions where that becomes relevant, but I don't even know if that's in my personal space really important. And I think what Andrew is trying to say is to say, we are for God's people. And who are God's people? Every single person that God created. Because there's nobody on this planet that isn't here because God made them. They didn't come from somewhere. Now that doesn't mean I'm against anybody. There's spaces where I go, well, this is righteous and this is justice. This reflects God and this does not reflect God. Yes, but when I'm talking about people fundamentally, first of all, it, I, I have a different approach, a different standpoint, don't I? In a, a couple of years ago, a, a group of Christian leaders were invited to go and speak to some Hamas leaders. This was a, a while ago. And uh, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Church in the UK, Canon Andrew White, was asked to lead a group of Christians to go and meet with one of the founding members and a couple of other leaders of Hamas, a guy by the name of Sheikh Talal Sideh. And they sat and had a tea and, and, and some time with the sheikh. And they were discussing about how is, is there a possibility of peace in this situation. And so many things were said. Towards the end of their discussion, one of the leaders that were present in the room was given an opportunity, was asked by the sheikh to share his thoughts. I'm going to read you what he said. He said, the sheikh you and I may never see each other again, so I want you to hear me. A little distance from here is a mountain upon which Abraham went 5,000 years ago to offer his son. You may they say the son was one, and I may say the son was another, Ishmael or Isaac. Let's not argue about that. He took his son up there, and as the axe was about to fall, God said, stop. The Christian leader asked the sheikh, he said, do you know... What God said after that, he said, stop. The sheikh shook his head. He didn't know. The Christian leader said, God said, I myself will provide. The sheikh nodded his head. And then the Christian leader said, very close to where you and I are sitting, sheikh, is a hill. Another hill. 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise and brought his own son, and the axe did not stop this time. He sacrificed his own son. And then the Christian leader said this. He said, Sheikh, I just want you to hear me. 
Until you and I receive the son God has provided, we'll be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for many of the wrong reasons. That is the foundational truth of the Lord your God is one. The only peace and hope that is possible in this world is ultimately because the Lord your God is one. Because there's one God, one sacrifice could be made for one people. Not ten different sacrifices by ten different entities and representatives, but one God came down to earth and made one sacrifice so that all may be saved. And that, my friends, is your and my fundamental foundational position. On every front line, on every front line, this is what makes us different than the people around us. The average person you get to deal with on your front line, their life is about many things. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to make it work. They're trying to balance the scales. They're trying to live a good life and trying to manage the chaos and the confusion. I know you and I sometimes feel like that, but can I encourage you today? You are not like that. Your life has an order to it. It has a meaning. It has a purpose. Because it comes from one place, and it is lived towards one place. And that place is a person. The Lord your God is one. And that's fundamentally what separates us from anybody else. And that's what gives us the right to go and believe that we've got something like a front line. Because one way of living life is, okay, that's my truth, but I'm not going to bother anybody with my truth. No, that's not my truth. That is the truth. And therefore, I have a responsibility to live that out wherever I go. It impacts my life on every level practically that I view life that way. That everything is about God. God is somehow involved in everything that goes on and cares about everything and everyone. There's no space where I can go where God is not or is not involved or active. There's no moment I can experience where God is not caring about that moment, about how to love people in that moment and how to teach people to love Him in that moment. And that's the purpose of my life, is to know what it means to be loved by God and then to help others know how they can love God and live towards His love. And everything hangs on that. And that's why this is what we call the great commandment. Not the great suggestion. Not the great, if you have time, it would be good. We forget this. Because we live in a world where love is so sloppy and soft and sentimental that this is not the love suggestion, this is the commandment. We are commanded. Why? How can God say, I command you to love me? Because hang on. Isn't love only love if I choose it out of free will? Yes. But if it is the fundamental, ultimate truth, then it is right for God to say, I command you. Because if you don't do this, you will die. There's no life possible outside of this truth. Love me. So Jesus gives us this commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, what does that mean? Let's just, let's just break it down a little bit quickly. Love the Lord with all your heart. How do you love God with all your heart? I want to say four things quickly. First of all, 
To love God with all your heart means we love Him exclusively. You love Him and Him only. The Hebrew word for love is the word ahab and means to have affection for, desire, delight in, to be fond of. It implies an ardent inclination of the mind and the tenderness of affection and denotes a strong emotional attachment for and a desire to be in the presence of the object, in the presence of the object of your love. The Greek word is agapao, which means to have a preference for, to wish well, to regard the welfare of. It is to take pleasure in, to prize it above other things, to be unwilling to abandon it or do without it, to welcome with desire, to long for. So God says, I want you to love me, not with a portion of your heart, with all your heart. Therefore, my love for God has an exclusive element to it. What I mean by exclusive is, I love him only. Ultimately, the love of my life is not many things. It's one thing. I love God. Because I love God, I love other things. But I don't love other things, therefore I love God. I love God, therefore I love other things. I love my family because I love God. But I don't love my family and that means I love God. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? There's one central love of my life and your life. I love God. My whole heart is given to Him, exclusively and only Him. I, Jesus said you cannot love the world and God at the same time. I don't know about you. I've been married for 31 years, and I'm so deeply thankful it's been to one wife at a time. I know, there's people that think you can love three women at the same time equally. I just don't know how that practically works. I think there's a reason when it comes to marriage that God in his wisdom, and as we understand in Christianity, marriage is the union of one man and one woman. Because let me tell you, loving that one woman, praise the Lord. How many, how many of you have heard this wonderful teaching about love languages? You know, so I've been told my, life, my wife has a love language. You know what I've figured out about love language? Her love language is whatever she wants at that moment. That's her love language. Don't, men, if I, don't get fooled into this thing of thinking, if, if your wife's love language is quality time, that's all you have to give her. No, no, no. If she wants words of affirmation in that moment, you better give her words of affirmation. No quality time is going to compensate. Any other men share my experience? Am I correct? Now, men are similar, don't worry, but you know, I'm a man, so I can't speak for the woman. So one of the ladies, you can, you can correct me when it's your turn. But I, I struggle to do that with one wife. Imagine having three wives. Why did you spend more time with her? You know, my love language is quality time. I saw you spending quality time with her. Yes, but I gave you gifts. No, I don't want your gifts. I want love. I don't know. Imagine trying to love three gods at the same time. It's impossible because I have to love him with all my heart. What makes my marriage a unique relationship amongst all the other relationships is that I have to love that one person with all. I'm sorry, I love all of you, but none of you will have all my heart. 
like my wife has. Is that okay? Is that okay? She is my all when it comes to a human level. And even she doesn't have claim to my heart the way God has. You cannot practically do that. We love God exclusively. Not only do we do a loving exclusively, we love Him surpassingly. We love Him in a way that is more than anything else we love. Listen to a few things that Jesus said. Jesus said this, for instance. He said, let me find my scripture. Uh, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, fathers and mothers, okay. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Aina, can Jesus actually be saying that you should love him more in a way that is so much more than you love your own children that it might look like you're not even loving your children compared to how much you love Jesus? Now, if there's one thing in our world generally in society at this point in time that all people and cultures agree on, it's this statement, family comes first. Except for you. If you're a Christian, you don't believe that. I'm sorry to tell you. Jesus first. I don't even love my, ma my family the way I love him. My family is not first in my life. Now, because I love Jesus, I love my family more than I would have ever loved them if I didn't love Jesus first. But my love for my family is a reflection of the love of Jesus, and it is me trying to serve my family, pointing them back to the love of Jesus, trying to teach them what it means to love Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If you put your family first, do you know what your inevitable end, if you put your family first, you will become the mafia. Because the mafia statement is family first. You mess up with my family. You mess up with my family, you will find a dead horse in your bed. And if you keep messing up with my family, you will be dead next to the dead horse. Because if my family's my highest good, I can do whatever I want to to protect my family. But now as a Christian, I love my family, but I serve God that says, thou shalt not kill. And at some point, I have to go, sorry family, this is where I draw the line. Many of you know that there are things that your family is doing and believes in and rituals and practices, and as a Christian, you have to say, I love you, and I want you to know I love you, but at some point, I've got to draw the line. I cannot continue on with you, because at this point... You are asking me to choose between you and Jesus. And I'm sorry, Jesus comes first. Amen? Amen? My love for him surpasses everything. Not only is my love exclusive, not only does it surpass, but my love is also persevering. It perseveres. It's not a love that is here today and gone tomorrow. It's not a love that is, you know, for a period of time, for a season. I can't fall in love with God and out of love with God. I love Him all the time, everywhere, every moment. I love Him. And sometimes loving Him is not convenient. A lot of our frontline opportunities comes along our path when it doesn't suit us and in ways that it's hard to actually think at first. 
Now, I'm sorry to say this, I, I, but it's really alive in my heart, and you're my community, so you're part of my therapy also. But having been through this armed robbery that we had on the 27th of September, you know, five men walking into a house with guns, they make you lie on the floor, they, they beat me up a bit. Those are moments where what you fundamentally believe is going to manifest. Ready or not, here we come. And I was so amazed to see how my family responded in that moment. Lying on the carpet, prayer just arose. And I said to you when I, when I spoke about it briefly, they said to Natasha, Mommy, stop praying. You can pray in your heart. Guess what the response was? Sorry, no. And the prayer just went louder. And can I tell you what was some of the prayer that my, my wife, my, my one son prayed out loud for these guys to hear. Father, we forgive them for what they're doing right now in Jesus' name. We forgive. Now, can I tell you, that's a frontline moment right there. Neil spoke about Babylon. That's Babylon coming into your house. And now that messes with your mind. But can I tell you this? As we've processed afterwards... One of the things we recognize and what we feel, and I'm not saying anybody else is to feel the same in a situation, but what we feel is God loves those men enough to give us an opportunity to spend with them so that we can pray for them. One of the men, I, I didn't see them. I don't know what they look like. I, I don't have, only one do I have a sense of features, and it was a young guy that was quite small. And as I was being led around and I saw him, I realized he's being trained because he wasn't engaging. He was standing to the side. He was being trained how to do this. That's the boy I pray for. Now, I also pray, may they be caught. May justice be served because they need to go to prison so that they stop doing this to other people. I pray that. But I pray more than that or with that, I pray, save their souls, Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us an opportunity. Because from that moment on, I'm sure it may have happened with other houses also, but from that moment on, they're being prayed for regularly. When we pray for food, we pray for them. Lord, save their souls. I didn't choose that front line. I don't think God orchestrated that front line. It's just life. When we were flying back from the States now uh, to save the Americans some money, I thought, ah, oh, we'll, we'll do the cheaper flights, and so we'll fly via Dubai. That meant flying eight hours, two and a half hour layover, then 14 hours to America. So you don't feel like a human being. And so when we were coming back, we spent 51 hours traveling to come back, leaving Washington, driving, you know, airport. And so we finally land in Dubai, and they, we got a two-hour layover. It's not too bad. They put us on our plane, and as I'm sitting on the plane, I'm looking at the cockpit, and I'm going, there's way too much activity. There's something not right. And it doesn't take them long, and they announce, sorry, there's something wrong with the plane. You have to disembark. We're going to reload the plane. You're going to put you on a new plane. And so your flight's delayed for two and a half hours. Here's a little voucher for a McDonald's Junior Burger that you can go have and, uh, you know, sort, be happy. And how many of you know that a flight full of people, they're already irritated. Those people come from all over the world, from New Zealand, from everywhere, to come and now they've delayed for another two and a half hours. And some of them have connecting flights. So you could feel the temperature in the plane. So we go, when we come back, those same people, same crew, loaded onto a different plane. I could feel the irritation levels. 
So people were starting to fight with each other about whose luggage can go into which compartment, whose chair. I want to sit next to my wife. No, I'm not going to move. And you could just feel the, and the, the chief purser was starting to get a bit irritated. And my response in that moment is I start just seeing if I can help people. So I start moving luggage around. Eventually, the air hostess comes to me and says, you might as well put on a uniform and start working. <laughs> so I said, well, if that can translate to a business class seat, let's, we've got business. That didn't happen. So that's like for me, I'm realizing this is a moment. I can add to the chaos or I can help and bring order. But then when we were now taken off the plane and now we... And so there was a lady that we connected with just now. She just went, where must I go? So we started talking to a South African lady. She's living in New Zealand with one of her children. Four months ago, her one side, son died, 23 years old, in a horrible accident here on the highway, just here outside of mainland. And she's come back to South Africa the first time to go visit the site where it happened and to try and get closure. The moment she tells us that story, I see my wife. She's moving into frontline mode immediately. Immediately, I, can see, I know what she's doing. She's starting to take this lady through a debriefing exercise. She's talking with this lady. She's encouraging. She's like, in that moment, she's like, and we had a fantastic conversation with the lady and, and you know, never told her that we're Christians or anything, but just trying to show her that in this situation, what does the love of God look like and how do you love God in this situation? I don't know tomorrow this time what's going to be happening with you. I don't know what your front line is going to be. But can I tell you, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God. In every situation, this is the life of a Christian. How do I love God exclusively? How do I love Him surpassingly? How do I love Him? What is my fourth one there? Perseveringly. And the fourth one is, how do I obey Him? Now please remember, for the Christian, obedience is not a duty. It's not a fear. It's a love response. I love God. I obey Him because I love Him. You know, when my kids were small, if I told them, you will clean the kitchen, they didn't really have a choice in the matter. They could choose, but it would be horrible for them to not obey me. I would, rack, I would ratchet up the pain till they obeyed me. You know, there's things you can take away. There's, you know, lots of things you can do. Now that they're sort of in their 20s, I don't have that same power anymore. If I phone home and, I, and one of my sons answers or I phone one of them and I say, listen, we're coming home. There's people coming over quickly. Um, can you just help clean the kitchen? If my 20-something-year-old son says to me, sorry, Dad, I've got a project. I cannot do that now. I'm under pressure. I can't say to him, excuse me? <laughs> then I say, okay, I understand. I'll phone another brother. Praise the Lord, we've got four. Somebody somewhere has <laughs> got to have time. You know? There's got to be some benefit in this. But if my son says, yes, dad, sure, we'll, I'll, I'll, quickly, I'll quickly clean the kitchen. Why does he do that? Because he loves me. It's a free choice. Jesus said, you're no longer my slaves, you're my friends. We obey because we love him. So my front line is not a space where I go into trying to figure out how to love God on my front line because I feel guilty or I feel bad or I'm scared God's going to judge me. It's my love response. I love him. And therefore, I want to live his love. I love him with all my heart. I love him with all my mind. 
Our, as we become Christians, our minds begin to engage with the truth of the gospel. And, and Romans says, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind begins to engage with truth. But not only does that truth inform the way you, you think, it begins to master you. It begins to change your life and how you engage with life. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing with each of us, teaching us how to love God, how to think as those that love God. Because the Bible says in Proverbs, doesn't it, in Proverbs 23 verse 7, that as a man thinketh, so is he. What you put your mind on is what your life will be directed towards. And if my mind is captured by my love for God, my life will be directed towards that. If my mind is captured by a love for money or a love for fame or a love for relationships, my life will be directed towards that. But my life must be directed towards how do I love God? I think about God. The scripture says, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night in Psalm 1. I love him. I'm, my imagination, which is part of your mind, is totally captured by him. C.S. Lewis said something really great. He said this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this world. You see, my mind and my heart as a Christian is captured by this ultimate reality of what it looks like when God is on the throne, when His will is being done, what it looks like when you live in the fullness of His life, which ultimately be, will be for us in life hereafter in heaven. So my mind is so captured by that that I'm trying to live that here already. I'm not trying to figure out this life. I'm trying to reproduce that life in this life because I'm so encaptured by that. That's what C.S. Lewis says. If you want to have an effect on your front line, be captured about what God's kingdom looks like. Begin to imagine what God's kingdom looks like. Then you can begin to reproduce it. But if you're just trying to make life work in your office, you're never going to make a difference. But begin to pray. And how do we imagine as Christians? We pray. Lord, show me your heart. Show me your mind. Show me what you are thinking about my family, about my front line. Begin to speak to me. Capture my heart with your thoughts. And my mind begins to meditate on that. And then the last one is I love him with all my strength. For me, strength is just all my ability. Every energy, every moment, every opportunity is an opportunity to say, Lord Jesus, how can I love you in this moment and help others to know what it means? All my talents, all my abilities, my resources, my money, my time, what am I capable of doing? I bring to bear in that moment and say, Lord, how do I love you? Love him with all my abilities. You have a front line. I don't have to give you one today. I don't have to assign one to you. You have it. You've got it already. You've had it for a long time. And you're going to have it for the rest of your life. Your front line is made up of many different things. Families, friends, classmates, university, you know, working groups, your people at work, the people that you hang out with at the gym, whoever. Wherever you go, you've got a front line. And it's very easy to feel like, oh, it's too much. I can't, I can't add another thing to my life. My life is too chaotic already. That's not what we're asking you to do. That's the difference between living a missional life and living an outreach life. 
An outreach life is every now and then I go do something so that I can show people Jesus loves them. A missional life is every day, every moment. I'm living in that moment on the mission to love Jesus and reflect that to other people and draw them towards what it means to love Jesus. I can go on outreaches and it's great and it has absolute validity. But every day I'm on a mission. That's why our saying for ourselves, how we describe ourselves, is we're a community on a mission. We're a community on a mission. We live the six M's, which Neil spoke about last week. We live up in and out lives because we're living for one thing. One thing. If tomorrow the way I love Jesus is by making good work and doing the best work I can on a project that I've been entrusted with, then that's my front. If it's driving my kids around, while I have to get supper ready and while I have to you know, think of my phoning my mom, and I can go, thank you, Lord, that fundamentally my life's about one thing. Won't you stand with me? I'm just going to end the service, guys. You don't have to join me, worship team. Thanks. Just to save time a little bit. I want to pray a simple prayer for us today and just pray this. Lord Jesus. So I wonder if you can just agree with me. Just Lord Jesus. Thank you that my life is not about many things, but one thing. Help me to remember that. Help me to live that. To love you with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength. And to love my neighbor as myself. Lord, I, let me just pray for you. Lord, I pray for right now for a sense of peace, a sense of order, a sense of hope. In Jesus' name. I break the yoke of religiosity that tells us we have to do this in our own strength and we recognize that we cannot do this. We only respond to you, Lord, and allow you by your spirit to do something in us so that we can reflect that. So I break the power of the spirit of religion that would want to exhaust, exasperate, and break people down. I come against any fear. I come against anxiety in Jesus' name. I come against any feelings of inadequacy, of self-doubt, of worthlessness, Lord. I break those things in Jesus' name. They have no place in our lives. And I know as human beings we will struggle with that from time to time. Some of us to varying degrees. It's part of the human experience. But thank you, Lord, that we don't have to yield to that. We don't have to give that free reign in our lives. We don't have to make that our master. We can stand up and say, no, my life is about one thing. And thank you that I don't have to figure that out on my own, what that looks like, but that by your Holy Spirit, the comforter, comes alongside me and guides me in all truth and so I pray right now just for your truth and your peace so that as we go from here we can be a community on a mission responding to this amazing love and letting your spirit just flow through us without force without fear without guilt but because we get to do this I pray for every frontline that people will face in this week. May they experience your joy even in the most difficult moments. 
And I thank you for that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The Lord bless you. Remember, as you go, you're going on a mission. And I remind you of the GLS that we're running on Friday. It's a great opportunity to build some of your skills and, and be equipped for your front line. So please, if you haven't signed up, go to the table and, and get your, your, your little pamphlet with a QR code and sign up. If you want to meet with uh, Lena in the Connect Lounge, if you want to find out more about our community, do that. And then if you want prayer this morning, our prayer team will be with you in the front and they're ready to pray with you, help you to know what it means to serve Jesus and to just pray for you in any need that you have. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. We're starting with our new series, and it's going to be a great time. It's going to be called Free Indeed, and we're going to be talking about what it means to be free in Christ. So have a great, fantastic week. May the Lord bless you.